Hi, I'm Oli Neal, and you're listening to the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. Jim, it's great to be back after the holiday period. Uh, did you have a good time? Was uh, Santa good to you? Well, I got some very nice gifts, uh, but by far the best one was given to me by your youngest brother, Ben. Uh, <laughs> I'm using it now. It's a coffee mug uh, with the logo of the Equip Project emblazoned <laughs> on its side along with my name. So Ben has officially won Christmas. Yeah, I know. This is honestly probably my favorite gift as well because I got I got the twin uh, with, with Ollie uh, on the side. So we're doing pretty well in terms of merchandise now, Jim. Um, maybe this points the way to a whole line of, of merchandise, coffee mugs, sweatshirts, Shirts, baseball caps. I think there's endless possibilities with that. Absolutely. Fridge magnets, uh, uh, wall calendars, action figures. Well, maybe not action figures. <laughs> <laughs> that would stretch the limits of credulity. But where Taylor Swift merchandise travels, the Equip Project will fall. <laughs> That's such a weird image. Um, I really think we should go for it, though. I mean, we could end up, imagine you as an Instagram influencer, Jim. <laughs> My brain has just crashed. <laughs> Um, to give it time to reboot, let me explain what this episode is going to be about. We're going to tackle an idea that's very critical um, of religion. A lot of young people have a real sympathy for the idea that religion has had a negative influence on the human story. Christopher Hitchens, um, who now has passed away, he was famous for saying that religion poisons everything. That's maybe his most famous quote, but he didn't invent that accusation. It's been around since the Enlightenment. The New York Times was uh, once asked its readers to nominate humanity's worst invention. And the answer, obviously, is almond milk. Uh, but the best-received nomination for humanity's worst invention was monotheism. Monotheism, the belief in one transcendent God, has apparently been responsible for most of the wars and bigotry in history. Yeah, there's quite a bit of substance behind that accusation as well, because it's not just a soundbite. Critics like Chris Hitchens, they make three big charges against religion. And the first is that religion encourages absolute certainty. People who believe things with absolute certainty can be kind of scary. It's very unnerving to argue with someone who simply says, I know the truth. Nothing you can say can change my mind. Okay, so that's going to be your first accusation, absolute, absolute certainty. Yeah, and the second charge is that religion divides humanity into believers and infidels. It's argued that by its nature, religion creates in-groups and out-groups, it always divides people into us and them. Sociologists teach a theory that Western thought has been shaped by a series of binary oppositions. So male-female, white-black, Catholic-Protestant, Aryan-Jew, these in-and-out categories, which lead to the construction of what is called the other. Group identity is fostered by defining who's not in the group and who is the other. Yes, a religion is accused of being the prime mechanism for othering people to use that ugly term, uh, dividing people into believers and infidels. So the third and final accusation then is that religions can turn normal human squabbles into great cosmic battles between good and evil. So without religion, uh, some people argue, there would continue to be human conflicts and disagreements, but religion can take these little disagreements and transcend them, raise them up to struggle in which the authority and will of a transcendent being is involved. So to put that in crude terms, it's possible to reason with an opponent if you're both fighting over land rights or who caused a road accident. But it's very difficult to reason with someone who believes that God has told them to kill you. 
That's true. You've arranged your three charges against religion with, with real artistic flair, Ollie, because they form the acrostic ABC, if I followed you correctly. There's absolute certainty, believers and infidels, and cosmic warfare. So, you're right. Those are the three substantial reasons why many people totally dislike religion, uh, all religion. Maybe the most damaging summary of this criticism came from Steve Weinberg, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics. He famously said religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you would have good people doing good things and bad people doing bad things. But for good people to do bad things, that takes religion. So my simple question to you, Jim, is can religion be defended against those three charges? No. <laughs> okay, this is going to be quite a short episode then. <laughs> religion can't be defended for a very logical reason. There is no such thing as religion. In technical terms, religion is a false universal. Individual religions may exist, but religion as a category doesn't. I'm following in the footsteps of Margaret Thatcher here. I'm attacking your question. So imagine for a moment, there's a large shelf on the wall behind us, uh, labelled Religions of the World. And on that shelf sit Buddhism, uh, I don't know, Hinduism, Islam, atheism, and Christianity. And if the shelf is big enough, we might also put up belief systems uh, called Taoism, Shintoism, New Age spirituality, belief in the flying spaghetti monster. Now, I deliberately provoked our listeners just now by slipping atheism into that list. Should it be on the list? The point is, how would you decide what belief systems go on the shelf and what ones don't? During the period of uh, colonial expansion, Europeans came across different worldviews or different belief systems in the East, and they labelled them as religions. So every time they came across something like Taoism or Confucianism or Buddhism, the colonial powers called it a religion. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Lumping every belief system ever thought of into a big bucket and calling it a religion is a fairly useless thing to do. Think, think about Buddhism for a moment. Buddhism, at least Theravada Buddhism, is essentially atheistic. It's a philosophy that rejects the notion of a personal, eternal creator. It rejects the idea that human beings have an eternal soul. So it is much closer to atheism than it is to something like Christianity or Islam. So what makes a particular belief system a religion? If you object to atheism being put on my shelf, because atheism rejects the notion of a personal creator, then we need to take Confucianism and Buddhism off the shelf at the same time. But surely historians have tried to define the common characteristics of a religion. So religions tell a story which explain how things really are. Religions have ceremonies, they give ethical guidance on how to live, and they create community. So surely if we come across beliefs which explain the way things really are, if there are ceremonies, guidance on how to behave, and a sense of community, then it seems we have a religion. The problem with that attempt to define religion is that your four characteristics apply equally well to political beliefs. So think of the Soviet Union in the 1960s. Marxism was taught to Soviet children as an explanation of the way things really are. Then the Soviets had lots of quasi-religious ceremonies to induce loyalty to the state. Soviet literature is full of guidance about how the noble worker should behave. And the Communist Party stands as the greatest attempt atheists have ever made to forge a community. So, does that make communism a religion? The best figures we have around today say that about 10% of the world's population is committed to atheism. So can it be right to take the other 90% of humanity and lump them all into the same category just because they aren't atheists? Is it sensible to put the peace-loving Amish community in the same camp as those murdering psychopaths and ISIS? just because they aren't moral relativists? So my point is, religion cannot be defended because religion cannot be defined. 
Well, even if your argument about there only being particular religion stands, is it still reasonable to ask you whether or not the world would be better off without a particular religion like Christianity? Of course it is. Your three charges, the the ABC accusations, if you like, are really strong. But my job is only to defend Christianity. I'm under no obligation to defend Islam or animism any more than atheism. Some people might react to that position by saying it's arrogant. You're implying that Christianity is right and everything else is wrong. Well, Christianity does say that it is right and that the other belief systems are wrong. But Christians aren't the only people to make exclusive claims. I mean, just think about the atheist's position for a moment. Atheism says that Christianity is wrong, Buddhism is wrong, Islam is wrong, Zoroastrianism is wrong. Everything is wrong except atheism. So it turns out that atheism is guilty of the very charge that it levels at Christians. There's a great deal of silly thinking in this area. Buddhism, Islam and Christianity all say completely contradictory things. The idea that they're all just different paths leading up the same mountain, it might seem attractive, but it's logical gibberish. All the main belief systems in the world contradict each other. So, by definition, all but one of them must be wrong. Now, they might all be wrong, of course, but they can't all be right. That's just straightforward logic. Let's now take the three charges, absolute certainty, believers and infidels, and cosmic warfare, and see how Christianity measures up. I said earlier that people who believe things with absolute certainty can be rather scary. Don't Christians fall into that category, Jim? I would say no. Because remember, Christianity is falsifiable. If that statement shocks the uh, Christians listening, go and read 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul makes precisely that claim when he's talking about the resurrection. One of the unique features of Christianity is that it claims to be truth revealed in history. That makes it testable. Christianity, by its very nature, encourages rational discourse. Just read how Paul argues with non-Christians in the book of Acts. He sets out to persuade people. Sometimes he succeeds, sometimes he fails but he is always courteous and rational. He isn't some swivel-eyed zealot whose beliefs are nothing more than an act of the will. So I don't think it's fair to say that Christianity encourages absolute certainty. What about the second charge that Christianity divides people into believers and infidels? That it leads to othering people? Well, the answer here is simple. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ goes out of his way to teach us how to overcome divisions in society. We are to love our neighbours, but we are also to love our enemies. He condemns in the strongest possible language anyone who expresses contempt for another person or people group. Remember, it was Christ who told the story of the Good Samaritan. The Christian vision for humanity is one that brings all tribes, nations, peoples and languages together into harmonious whole. In Christ, says Paul, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave or free. The final accusation, the C of my ABC, was that religions take normal human squabbles and elevate them into great cosmic struggles. So people can run around killing other people because God told them to. One of Jesus' most revolutionary statements was made in a conversation he had with Pontius Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. The New Testament closes the door firmly on any use of violence to further the kingdom of God. So the relationship between Christianity and violence is very simple. Anyone who uses it to advance a religious idea is being disobedient to Christ's explicit commands. We're recording this episode in South Belfast, Jim, and this part of the world has a history of violence, and many people put that violence down to 
religious conflicts. Wasn't the history of Northern Ireland's troubles a history of religious violence between Catholics and Protestants? I know a man who served as a prison officer in the, in the Mays prison. And he told me once that when he walked down the Republican wing of the prison, he saw books on Marxist revolutionary theory. And when he walked down the Loyalist wing, he saw books on bodybuilding. Now, does anyone seriously think that the atrocities committed by each side were caused by an argument over the, I don't know, the doctrine of transubstantiation? Of course not. The conflict in Ireland has always been tribal and political. Religion was nothing more than a badge of identity. A lot of famous atheists don't really bother to bring specific charges against Christianity. Instead, they say, just look at history. If you look at the historical record, people like Richard Dawkins say you'll see the negative effect Christianity has had on the human story in the West. Yes, generations of English public schoolboys were taught that particular piece of fiction. And the view you're describing is most closely associated with the English historian called Edward Gibbons. He's famous, as you will know, for his work called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. If I was to caricature it, I would tell the story of the golden age of the Greeks, you know, where reason and light abounded during the classical period. But then Christianity came along and squatted on the back of humanity over a thousand years uh, like a great toad. It ushered in a period where men lived in superstition and fear. But then, fortunately, fanfare of trumpets, please, came along the Enlightenment. And once again, men lived in the light of reason of the human spirit. So if you were to talk to our own Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, about these things, he would say that all the good things in Western civilization came from the Greeks rather than from Christianity. You called that view of history a fiction. What evidence can you point to to back up that claim? Well, it's really interesting. More recent historians have challenged the Gibbons view of Christianity. Perhaps the most famous one these days is uh, Tom Holland. He's just published a book called Dominion. It's on the table in front of me. Now, I don't agree with everything in that book, but it is a carefully argued piece of work about Christianity's influence on the modern world. I've just started reading that book myself, Jim, and Holland isn't actually a Christian, is he? But he's very positive about Christianity's role in history. Yeah, there's a really interesting interview uh, with Holland uh, where he describes how he suddenly realised that his worldview wasn't built by Cicero or Juvenal. It was built by the Apostle Paul. In fact, he says, the ancient Greek and Roman cultures were alien to him. All the beliefs he finds himself at home with are derived from the New Testament. Now, he follows the most critical scholars who, who only concede seven of the letters attributed to Paul were actually written by him. But, says Holland, even if we go with that very small amount of writing, we find that they explain the modern world. Think of human rights, um, international law, the value of the individual. All these things that we take for granted don't come from the Greeks. They come from Paul and the Gospels. There's an amazing moment in the interview when Holland describes Paul as being like a depth charge that went off deep within the classical world, and the ripple effects were felt over a thousand years later. The historical arguments in favour of Christianity aren't just limited to the realm of ideas, Jim. Young adults today care deeply about social justice, and it was Christians who pioneered orphanages, hospitals, and care for the elderly. From the first century, Christians established common treasuries for the needy, and by the fourth century, they had developed poor houses and mental asylums. Let's come forward to modern history and think of Lord Shaftesbury's astonishing work to create the Factories Act of 1833 the first of a series of giant steps taken by Christians to protect children from exploitation. The abolition of slavery in Britain was largely due to the courage of Christian abolitionists like William Wilberforce. That's right. 
And it was Christians who built universities and libraries, even through the Dark Ages, actually preserving classical literature for millennia. Think of European art and music and architecture. They all owe a great deal to their Christian heritage. And the same assertion can be made of science. I mean, a huge number of the world's greatest scientists were Christians. Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Maxwell, Kelvin, Leibniz, Pascal, Faraday. I mean, that's just a handful of them. Yeah, exactly, Jim. I I studied law at undergraduate level, and our entire legal system is built on the foundation of Christian values. There's a chap by the name of Augusto Zimmerman, and he's a legal scholar out in Australia. And he wrote an article in which he essentially outlines the Christian roots of the English common law. Um, He says the English common law has had an incredibly rich Christian heritage. And in his final paragraph, he says some really amazing words. He says to ignore the Christian heritage of English law results in a diminished understanding of the common law and the principles that underpin it. Accordingly, the ongoing divorce of the, the law from its own Christian foundation will only bring disaster to the legal system. I think that's an amazing paragraph, really remarkable words from a legal scholar recognizing the importance of Christianity to our legal system. Yeah, that's all all right, Ollie. Uh, So I think the answer, if you take a step back, the answer to the question, would the world be better off without Christianity, uh, is a resounding no. Jim, thanks so much for all your help on this episode. It's been really interesting thinking this topic through. I also want to thank all of you guys listening, uh, particularly those who have suggested topics for future episodes. And in our next episode, episode 12, we're going to be addressing one of those topics. And that's the question of doubt. I know a lot of Christians struggle with doubt at, at some point in their Christian life. And we're going to be thinking that through in a little bit more detail and, and trying to help you guys as maybe you wrestle with that problem. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with friends and family on Instagram or on Facebook. We'd love uh, more and more people to become involved in these important discussions. If you'd like to suggest a topic or question we can talk about in future episodes, please email us at theequipproject at gmail.com or reach out to us via Instagram.